The Way Out Podcast, episode 37. We drink to the point we realize that there's something we need to do about our drinking. But then, so we start living, and then we get to a point where we just can't live anymore sober, so we go back to drinking. And right. I think that's what, it's so hard to, to explain to someone. Well, you can't explain to someone who, who hasn't been... In, in that, that mindset, I guess, where you get to that sense, that point of being so sick and tired, so exhausted, so emotionally drained from having to live this double life, have this front up for so long. It is a gift looking back because when you get that desperate, it cuts through all the all the fronts, all the delusion that, that, that's helped to facilitate your, your addiction. There was nowhere left for the lies to, I guess... Um, there's nowhere left for the lies to grow. There's nothing left for them to kind of cover up. You know, I, I needed, I needed help outside myself. The solution would only lie outside myself. I couldn't fix myself. You know, when I try to fix myself, I always ended up drunk or, or drug. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of the Way Out Podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow The Way Out Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we're blessed with the second part of our interview with James as he shares how he recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. But also, I guess there's, there's two things. Is, is one that I, that I heard early on that we have both a, a drinking and a living problem and, and we, we drink to the point we realise that there, there's something we need to do about our drinking. But then, so we start living and then we get to a point where we just can't live anymore sober, so we go back to drinking and... Right. I think that's what uh, – it's so hard to to explain to someone – well, you can't explain to someone who, who hasn't been in, in that, that mindset, I guess. And where I was going with that is that um, to cut through that, even though we have those – like you were saying, those, those uh, Eileen moments, uh, you know, to cut through that, we, we need to reach a point where it goes beyond – um, kind of that, I guess that that financial bankruptcy, that that physical bankruptcy. Uh, it, it's got to be a point where we reach that, as you said, that spiritual bankruptcy. And, and you know, I'm not a religious person, and so using terms like spiritual and things like that get you know makes me kind of you know it brings out the punk in me. It's like, what are you talking about, spiritual? Right. But, <laughs> like, like like you said, that 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 sense of loneliness. We get to that sense, that point of being so sick and tired so exhausted, so emotionally drained from having to live this double life, have this front up for so long um, that there's just nowhere to go. And, and the dr- like that song says, you know, the drugs don't work you know, anymore. The right. drugs, the right. alcohol, it's just not having that effect anymore. It just right. can't cut through that, that depth of despair anymore and, and you've got nowhere else to go. And, you know, I know we talk about in AA is the gift of desperation. Absolutely. That must seem... It must seem like such a bizarre concept to someone who's not in it. It's like, why do you have to get desperate to, to want to help yourself? You know, what, what, that, that just doesn't make sense, you know. But what that gift, it is a gift looking back because 
when you get that desperate, it cuts through all the all the fronts, all the delusion that that that's helped to facilitate your your addiction. You know that that self deception. Um, you know, people on the outside will uh, generally only notice the deception towards themselves. You know, and, and just be puzzled when um, we keep doing the same things over and over again. But they don't realise it, and they can't realise that just the level of self-deception required for an addiction to continue. You know, the, the lies we have to we 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 tell, not only tell ourselves but believe fully. And you know, it wasn't until I got to that point of exhaustion and became sick and tired of being sick and tired that there was nowhere left for the lies to, I guess, um, there's nowhere left for the lies to grow. There was nothing left for them to kind of cover up. You know, I, I needed I needed help outside myself. The solution would only lie outside myself. I couldn't fix myself. You know, when I try to fix myself, I always ended up drunk or, or drugged on something. Bingo. And you said you, you, you nailed it, James, for me. I had reached a point where I had done everything I knew how to do mm. to be okay, to, yeah. to, to just be okay. I was never okay. I never felt okay. And I felt okay when I drank and I used. And that got smaller and smaller and less and less. And as you said, it, it just stopped cutting through that utter despair. And I finally <laughs> surrendered and got that gift of desperation. It is a gift because I don't think I worked for it. And maybe, maybe – I'm I'm understanding that backwards because, you know, I did work 20 years <laughs> for it, mm. you know, in, in, yeah. in some respect. I earned that gift of desperation. Um, uh, I paid my dues for it, but I didn't at that moment when I surrendered and cried like a baby in the treatment counselor's office, I didn't actively try to surrender. It just came, right? Mm. And so... You surrender. You're in the you're you're in the bar, and you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. What what do you do? And uh, do you reach out? And do you do you um, is AA the first place you reach out to? Well, AA wasn't because I, I was convinced. Well, I wasn't convinced. I just didn't have the knowledge of alcoholism. I thought you know it was that stereotypical an alcoholic is the 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 bum in the park with the brown paper bag. Right. So I, I jumped online and. What I ended up doing was I, I had a Word document with this kind of pre-prepared prepared, uh, email kind of template basically saying, you know, hi, my name's James. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic, but uh, I think alcohol has caused a lot of problems in my life. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, I can often put it down for a little while and, and sometimes I get up to a week, longest I get up to is a month, but I always end up drinking again. Um, do you have any ideas what might be wrong and what might be able to help and and <laughs> then i think i went onto google or yahoo may have been the dominant uh, yeah. you know search engine at the time and uh googled um i think it was like mental health uh, help or drug and alcohol help something along the lines and i would just shoot off this this email you know this this template i had over and over to all these different agencies and uh, i ended up sending one to a group called the samaritans now i do believe they are in australia but um, the, the email address I sent it to was, was uh, where they're quite prominent in the United Kingdom. And I got this email back and, and you know, so grateful looking back that, um, you know, they took the time to respond. And this person said, you know, hi, James, sorry to hear that you've, you've got a bit of a problem there. I'm just curious, whoever said that you needed to be drinking and drugging daily to be addicted to something? And that, <laughs> um, and that, just, that just, the light bulb went on, you know, right. and, and it was like, you know, like what? Wow! Yeah. You know, it was it was like <laughs> that, and, and all of a sudden, all those questions I had over the years of my behaviour, it was like, it, of course, it was the drug and alcohol. I knew it was the drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. but I thought, well, it's not an addiction, so right. <laughs> you know, so what, what is it? Right? It what must is be so something. wrong? Yeah. Yeah, you know, if I can't, if I'm not an addict, why the hell am I acting this way? And right. um, um, and I believe at the end of the email, they said, why don't you um, give AA a, a try? They may be able to help you. So I, you know, close that window and, and you know, enter the AA, uh, you know, window or website and I did their quiz and I can't remember how many questions it was. Because there's 12, right? There's 12 questions, right? Is that the deal? Yeah. Because you know? there's 12 yeah. steps yeah. and 12 questions, you know? I think, yeah, yeah. I think you, you, you're spot on there. And um, I answered the questions and I got yes to every one of them except one, I think. So 11 yeses and, and one no. And I, I 
thought, okay, well, there's one no there. Maybe AA is not yeah. the one for me. But then I, I scrolled <laughs> right. down to them. And it said, you know, if you answer yes to any more than three of these, um, you know, chances are you have a problem with alcohol. And if you'd like to do something about it, we, we can help. And I thought, okay, this is, uh, you know, okay, AA, I didn't think it would be for me. I didn't think I was an alcoholic. But, hey, they said they might be able to help. So, um, you know, I'll take what I can get. And I looked up uh, meetings and... As it turned out, there was an AA meeting directly across the street from me, like literally 20 metres. And, um, uh, I, you know, I went along to that on, uh, I think it was a Monday night. Everyone, oh, So I came in at 21 and everyone there was roughly, you know, at least 20 years older than me. Very right. welcoming. Um, I sat there and I, I nodded. I, I really agreed with, you know, what everyone had to share. Uh I was asked to share and I shared my story and, or at least, you know, um, part of my story and I thought everyone would be mortified and, and you know, right. shaking their heads at me and all they did was call the next speaker <laughs> you know, and, I, and, I, and, and I sat down and I thought, oh, you know, I, I thought that, that, that was quite an odd experience and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I thought these guys were lovely. As I walked out of that room, there was a, a lady by the name of Pat who grabbed my hand and gave me a living sober book. And so I took that back to the apartment we were staying. Uh, and then later that week, I went to the pub again and I, and I or the bar and started drinking. And, and I remember a guy there was talking to me and he said, oh, how are you going? And, and I said, oh, listen, I'm good. I'm an alcoholic, by the way. And, and <laughs> sitting there drinking my, <laughs> my beer. And I, the look on his face, like I was, he was I, mortified. Yeah, right. he, he was like, well, you know, what is wrong with you? Um, right. And but he, he humoured me, and um, I, I walked back from the, the, I was walking back from the bar that night, and that same feeling of um, emptiness and, and sick and being sick and tired, uh, you know, and, and out of options came over me again, and. Um, I thought, right, I, I need to get back to this meeting. You know, I, I need to, to get back. I think they might be onto something. And, um, you know, I walked back into that meeting and um, that was on the um, – that was in July 2004. And, um, you know, I, I heard someone say and all the sober members say, you know, listen for the similarities and not the differences. And, and there were a lot of differences there. You know, I was 21. Everyone there was at least 40-something uh, and, you know, had careers and houses and, and and seemed to have a lot going on. And, and you know, here I was. I, I was a father. You know, I became a father at 19. I was unemployed and, um, you know, but once I started to listen for the similarities and like you were saying, you know, it, the similarities were all to do with the feelings, the, the, the feelings I'd been feeling and my relationship with alcohol and drugs and not the differences, and, and the differences were all, um, they were all tertiary things, they were all peripheral things, they were all kind of the, the window dressing of life, you know, like I, like I noticed when I first walked in, when I first walked in, I saw everyone's older than me, they all get along with each other, they've got this nice, they're nice people, but they've got this nice little club, um, you know, they're, they're very different to me. Once I cut away all of that and I listened to how they felt, had felt about life, what alcohol had done in their life... <laughs> Uh, that, that sense of hopelessness, that, that feeling of being uh, just tired with everything and, and doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result and getting the same result, feeling hopeless and, and looking for answers. Uh, you know, I had that instant, um, I could relate instantly, you know, and um, I, I went to walk out of that second meeting again thinking, right, these guys are great. I've related a lot, but you know what, they probably don't want me in their club. You know, they, they seem to have this nice little click going on. His hand shot out, you know, and he said, good to see you, James. Keep coming back. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Now, as I know, you know, that's something we, we, we make sure or we try to make sure we say to all newcomers that's now. Right. But, you know, um, thank God he did, you know. Thank God. And his name was Robert and uh, he, he became my first sponsor. But thank God he did because that cut through all that self-doubt, all that, that feeling of being less than, not wanted. And I got back to that meeting again at the same place, same time uh, the following week, you know, and, and um, not long after I, I began working the steps with Robert. And, um, you know, my, my life just, um, my, my life began to change in, in ways that I, I thought would never happen. You know, I can identify, James, you know, coming in, you know, I did a stint in AA when I was 22 and I wasn't like you people. Sure, I had 
alcohol-ish tendencies, but I wasn't really an alcoholic. I mean, mm. alcoholics are under a bridge drinking out of a brown paper bag, right? And, oh, absolutely. But there's something wrong with me, and I don't know yeah. what it yeah. is because it's yeah. clearly not alcoholism or addiction, but I got to get to the bottom of this deal, right? Yeah. Right? Yep. And And accepting my disease and and finally surrendering and the treatment counselor asking me, what do you want to get out of this? And I said, I want to know why, you know, mm. why, why am I like this? Why do I feel like this? Why? Um, and, uh, and she kind of looked at me and laughed and says, because you're an alcoholic and an addict, Charlie. Mm. And I, well, why did I become an alcoholic and an addict? You know, she's like, you know, maybe you figure it out, Charlie. Maybe it's because your mom died when you were 11, like you were saying. Maybe because you were tormented, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe because I had big alcoholic and addict switches and they were going to get they were mm. going to get bummed anyway, right? Mm. And, you know, if it wasn't, you know, the death of my mother and being bullied, maybe it would have been something else. And, you know, I was mm. bound in, to, to become it anyway. She said, do you think it matters? Do you think... Because mm. you know why you became an alcoholic and addict, do you think you'll ever be able to drink normally again? No. Do you mm. think you'll ever be able to use normally again? No. Okay, should we figure out how we get better? Mm. And it was like, okay, I get it. And so you go to these meetings and you've got this guilt and this shame and I'm so different than everybody yep. else. And I've got this uniquely painful, you know, <laughs> horrible story that nobody yeah. possibly could accept, right? The things that I've done, felt, right? And they've all felt like I've felt. Yeah. You know, they've felt that. And immediately, I feel like I'm not alone anymore. And I've mm. lived a, 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 a lifetime feeling alone. Mm. And I, I, I get to walk in... I walked into that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and they felt like I felt and they wanted to be back and they were genuinely glad they were genuinely glad I was there. They were genuinely happy to see me and they genuinely cared about me and they genuinely wanted me to get better. Yep. Yep. And, And I felt that love and I felt that acceptance that. Honestly, I had been longing for forever. Mm. And I just kept coming back and I worked the steps. So you had the ability, you felt that love, you felt that 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 compassion and that acceptance and you started working the steps. And I'm keenly interested because you made mention that you're not a, a religious guy and nor mm. am I. Um, and the, even the term spiritual gets you a little edgy. Um so how did you navigate the power greater than yourself? Yeah, sure. I mean, they're both really good questions. And, you know, I, I should say when I, when I began to feel that unconditional love and that support and, um, you know, compassion from the members of the group when I first turned up, that took me a little while to get used to. I, I just was not used to that. I I thought, what do they want from me? What, right, right. What, why, why is this older man taking so much interest in me, you know? And, uh, I, I, you know, that was my head, so self-centered. And, um, but also, you know, like you're saying, I, even when I was surrounded by people, I was always, because of the shame and the guilt and, and the sense of being so different and flawed to everyone else, I, I was always feeling alone. You know, I, 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 I in my drinking and drugging, I, you know, because I was always hurting people, you know, always lying, I thought maybe I'm a psychopath. That's what psychopaths do. You know, they they continually hurt people with no regard for their emotions and, and do constantly act out of a, a sense of self-centeredness. But right. the difference between, say, an alcoholic and an addict and a psychopath is that we have these emotions. We, we feel the immense shame and guilt for what we do. Right. It doesn't stop us doing the same thing over and over again. Right, right, that's but, right. But we, we, but we feel, you know, we feel those emotions, whether we push them down or smother them with the alcohol. And, and, and I had that, that just that immense sense of terminal uniqueness. And, um, you know, I guess it was from having those sober members putting their hands out saying keep coming back and, and hearing their stories and, and hearing 
you know, not certainly, you know, specifically some of the things they did that I did, you know, almost uh, word for word, but, but more so the emotional feelings they felt, that sense of isolation, that sense of being terminally unique went from being, sorry, yeah, went from being terminally unique to, to feeling actually I'm pretty, like they say, a garden variety alcoholic. Right. Know, there's actually nothing, there's, there's nothing that unique about my story. Um, that, that, that isn't found in AA at least. You know, certainly if I could tell someone on the street some of the stuff I used to get up to, they, they might be a bit horrified. But, <laughs> you know, in an AA meeting, you know, they'll just ask you to sit down if you, exactly. <laughs> if you share for too long. That's right. And, um, you know, that, that sense of breaking that isolation, uh, that, that normalisation of, of, of knowing that actually you're fairly – Although you have alcoholism, you know, you're, you're fairly normal in the scheme of things for an alcoholic and, and there's so many people like you and they're good people. They're not bad people, uh, you know, because I was a bad person as far as I was concerned and that's not the case. But anyway, sorry, to, with the spiritual experience, you know, for me that, that came through, that, that became pretty profound for me when I kept doing the suggested things at meetings and I, I came in quite a cynic thinking, right, well, you're saying that it'll get better. You're saying that if I work the program, my life will improve. I, I went from thinking, okay, well, if you can stop me from drinking, that will be fantastic because I'll stop hurting other people. But all this other stuff you're saying about life getting better and feeling at ease with myself – well, you know what, that's probably a lie you just tell people to keep us in because it, it, it stops us from, you know, harming the wider community. So it's probably a win and I'm willing to accept that life won't get any better, but at least I won't drink. But my life did start to get better. You know, <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, it would be little things that may have been around arguments with my girlfriend or it may have been the way I'd react um, to something happening on the street. It may have been... Um, you know, little things like turning up to a job and when something didn't go to m go my way, using the tools that I'd been shown in the program, handing it over, um, calling someone and, and, and talking it through with someone that although the outside world hadn't changed, my position in it had and my the, the way I'd respond to things in ways I never thought were possible began to happen. And that's when I started to think, hey, you know what, there's something going on here, whether it's a God in a religious sense, whether it's, uh, you know, a sense of uh, spirituality just in a universal sense, whatever it may be, there is something there that's happening that is far beyond my own personal free will. There's something far beyond um, what I'd ever been able to do on my own. And, you know, what it may have just been the collective power of uh, the AA group, but whatever it was, it was definitely a power far greater than myself. And, being the eternal cynic, and I can still be today, you know, I only have to look at how things were, what happened and what they're like now and what they continue to be like. You know, some of the stuff that's happened in my life, not just in the first couple of years of sobriety, but, you know, years later down the track when I thought, hey, you know what, this is as good as it gets in sobriety. I should just be grateful. Having these these beautiful surprises kind of happen, it's like, yeah, you know what, there's something, there's something at work here, whatever people want to call it, whatever people want to label it that is far beyond, uh, you know, James and, and his control. So, uh, you know, I, I became a reluctant believer, <laughs> I think is the word, but but certainly, you know, I see it not only in my life, but when you see, and, and I know you'd see it um, too, Charles, you know, when you see new people come to the rooms, you know, it's so easy to look at them and go, oh, I don't think they're going to make it. And then you may go to a different meeting for a while or they may end up in a different meeting for whatever reason and you see them six months later or a year later and, and you see this profound change and, and you think, wow, you know, there's, there's something going on here that's far more than just the individual. We'll be right back with the second half of part two of my interview with James as we delve into this week's edition of Recovery Revealed. I would like to share a piece from author Katrina Kennison. It goes as follows. When the going gets tough, when the going gets tough, may I resist my first impulse to wade in, fix, explain, resolve, and restore. May I sit down instead. When the going gets tough, may I be quiet. May I steep for a while in stillness. When the going gets tough, may I have faith that things are unfolding as they are meant to. May I remember that my life is what it is, not what I ask for. May I find the strength to bear it, 
the grace to accept it, the faith to embrace it. When the going gets tough, may I practice what I'm given rather than wish for something else. When the going gets tough, may I assume nothing. May I not take it personally. May I opt for trust over doubt, compassion over suspicion, vulnerability over vengeance. When the going gets tough, may I open my heart before I open my mouth. When the going gets tough, may I be the first to apologize. May I leave it at that. May I bend with all my being toward forgiveness. When the going gets tough, may I look for a door to step through rather than a wall to hide behind. When the going gets tough, may I turn my gaze up to the sky above my head rather than down to the mess at my feet. May I count my blessings. When the going gets tough, may I pause, reach out a hand, and make the way easier for someone else. When the going gets tough, may I remember that I'm not alone. May I be kind. When the going gets tough, may I choose love over fear every time. And now back to the second half of part two of my interview with James. You know, and, and that's why, you know, regular attendance at meetings is so important for me because I, you know, I don't like to see anyone uh, have a bust, but, you know, having someone come back from a bust um, is not only fantastic for, for them and their recovery, but, man, it, it, it really solidifies my own because when they talk about those thought processes, like you were just saying, you know, oh, you know, maybe, you know, I could drop off the meetings or I could drop off the work, the service work, and you're feeling okay, you know, I, I can hear people say that that's what happened for them right. leading up to the bus. You know, they drop off for a while and you see them come in and, and they, they look broken. And, that's right. And it's just the same story, you know, of, of dropping off meetings, not doing suggested things. You know, that thought comes in that maybe, you know, this time it'll be different. It just goes to show that, you know, it, it doesn't matter what else you've got going on for you in the outside world or, you know, what your IQ is or, or how many degrees you've got or cars or, or whatever. You know, if we don't treat the disease, the disease, um, you know, ends up rearing its ugly head again. There's no doubt about that, James, and how eloquent you put that. And for anybody new, I think that's so amazing how you described your spiritual experience which the big book really just describes as a personality change sufficient mm. to relieve of relieve the obsession to drink right i mm. mean that's what it is it's just a a, a in in the profound change that 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 i experienced when i decided that i was going to turn my will in my life over to the god that i had zero understanding of i know the step says the god of my understanding james but I didn't have an understanding and mm. I was too desperate to wait for an understanding. So I just, I just, I just prayed and I just, you know, um, helped people and I went through the rest of the steps and by virtue of that, I changed and, uh, I got better and life got better. And I came to believe that there was something like you said, something far greater than me at work here, because I don't do this on my own left to my own devices. I will, if I stop doing the things that I need to do to connect spiritually, I will get sick again. I just will. I know that mm -hmm. about myself. I will get sick again. And then my only choice is to, uh, 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 activate my disease. It's just the way it works for me because I'll stop praying and I won't spontaneously combust and then I'll stop going to meetings and I won't spontaneously combust yeah. by missing <laughs> a meeting either, right? And then I'll think, oh, well, maybe it, maybe it wasn't the meetings that was doing it. Maybe it was me all along. And Absolutely. Yeah, maybe, maybe sponsoring and being of service and doing a podcast, maybe that really wasn't what was keeping me sober and happy maybe it was just a phase james maybe oh, exactly yeah and, <laughs> and and that my friend is the cunning baffling powerful piece of this disease oh absolutely and 
you know, and, and that's why, you know, regular attendance at meetings is so important for me because I, you know, I don't like to see anyone uh, have a bust, but, you know, having someone come back from a bust um, it's not only fantastic for them and their recovery, but, man, it, it, it really solidifies my own because when they talk about those thought processes, like you were just saying, you know, or, you know, maybe, you know, I could drop off the meetings or I could drop off the work, the service work, and you're feeling okay. You know, I, I can hear people say that that's what happened for them. Right. Per- leading up to the bust. And, and these people aren't idiots, you know. Like, uh, you know, addiction has nothing to do with intelligence, you know. It, these people can be so rational and their self-will can get them so far in, in so many other aspects of their life. But there's just that blind spot, that hideous, cunning, baffling blind spot when it comes to our own addiction that, you know, that thinking starts to, to creep back in. And, and, you know, like you are saying, you could miss a meeting and you're not going to pick up the next day. But this could transpire over a period of years. That's you right. Know, for some people it's been a decade. And and I've I've seen people, and I know you would have too, Charles. That that when I've come into sobriety, they've been just the beacons of kind of what I want out of sobriety. And you know, they drop off for a while, and you see them come in, and, and they, they look broken. And that's right. And it's just the same story, you know, of, of dropping off meetings, not doing suggested things. You know, that thought comes in that maybe you know this time it'll be different. You know, maybe maybe it won't be, and and it just goes to show that you know it, it doesn't matter what else you've got going on for you in the outside world, or you know what your IQ is, or, or how many degrees you've got, or cars, or, or whatever. You know, if we don't treat the disease, the disease um, you know ends up rearing its ugly head again. And um, man, you know that's um, you know even just talking talking about it with you here, you know, is all. It, it, you know, one one alcoholic to another is just a it just kind of uh, it's again another light bulb for myself going oh yeah this is actually really um, you know it's much fun and, and it's much great stuff we have out of our sobriety I've still got to remember you know it's a, it's a deadly disease and it's a bloody cunning one too that's right you know in those those moments we just had one in my home group where somebody who had long term sobriety went out and you called it a bust and we you know he relapsed and um, the 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 it, there's nothing that brings me back to the that 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 moment, that pain and that desperation, than when I see somebody come back after a relapse and the pain and the desperation and the utter despair and and you, like you said they just look broken and I feel that mm. I feel that with them like and 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 that's amazing by the way James in and of itself that I'm even capable of empathy. Because I really, <laughs> really, really didn't think I had that in me. Uh, but, no, I don't think so. but but I, I I deeply empathize with that in a way that's it, it, very difficult to describe. And the process of a relapse is imperceptible for me. I can't perceive the process happening. Others might, but I yeah. cannot. Yeah. And yeah, until it's too late. Now tell me, James. You get sober at 21, and um, life starts to get better. Um, what are you doing today? What What's life like for you today? Uh, you wrote a book, a memoir, and I want you to tell us a little bit about it because um, uh, as a guy that likes to share stories, um, you know, uh, what an amazing format to be able to share your story. Tell us about it. Yeah, thanks, Charles. Well, it was again. It was it was one of these unexpected, um, you know, side paths that that popped up in sobriety. I think you know my early sobriety was fantastic in the sense that I was seeing these rapid kind of changes, these rapid kind of spiritual growth. Um, you know, just just things that were profoundly unavailable to me before, like holding down a job or, or um, you know being a good partner to my girlfriend or. Um, you know, not being reckless with money. Um, you know, all those things changed um, very quickly, and, and I was really—I guess—I was high on on sobriety early on. But like with a lot of us, um, and, and particularly those who, who think you know that, that they're still punk at some level, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, becoming the um, becoming the um, uh, the responsible kind of adult, and, and and all the kind of I guess the the lack of excitement that can come with that. 
uh, you know, I found I started to find that a bit grating. And, and at no time did I think, hey, I'd rather be drunk, you know, not at all. And, and if anyone's listening, please, um, you know, give me a, a nine-to-five job and life in the burbs any day over what I used to do. But, you know, I, I was feeling, um, you know, a level of um, discontent in terms of, hey, you know what, do I, you know, is this, is this um, you know, where, where's the next? Where's yeah, the next is this stage? all there is, right? Yeah, yeah, have yeah, I yeah. arrived? And I think that's yeah, a healthy but, thing, right? That's healthy. Yeah. That's okay. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I think in, in sobriety too, you know, when I have conversations, um, you know, with other others in recovery, you know, We've, we've got to be careful not to shut people down when they do express some kind of discontent over some areas of their life because it can be very easy to say, well, hey, you know, you're not practising the steps or you're not, you know, if you're grateful, you wouldn't have that attitude because uh, I guess part of acknowledging um, what recovery means is that we get to live these normal lives and normal lives will have these frustrations. You know, it's a, it's a completely normal way of um of experiencing life, it's, it's how we deal with them, I guess, is, is the key in recovery. But and we don't always have to accept, by the way. I mean, the serenity prayer, you know, it helps me with my acceptance, but it also tells me, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, right? Oh, absolutely right? spot on. I yeah, mean, yeah, so, if I, if so I, if there's something that's amiss in my life and I have the power to, you know, affect that change, I want, I, I, you know, I can do that too. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I can fall into the trap of, you know, being in a, a dead end job and, and really hating it and, you know, being years in thinking, hey, when's when's my higher power going to fix this for me? Right, right. Instead, instead right. of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, instead of actually, you know, changing the things I can. Um, uh, yeah, but anyway, so yeah, what was happening was I, I was in a job where, listen, it was a great job, but oh, man, I, I wanted to, to have some interests outside of work. And um I thought, well, what could I do? You know, I, I, I've always loved reading. I thought, why don't I give writing a go? And so I'd get out my laptop on the way to work. I'd pull over at a cafe that was uh, one of these early opening cafes and, and, um, uh, and it would often be a McDonald's as well. And, um, you know, I'd get out the laptop and I'd, I'd think, what can I write? You know, I, I thought, well, I don't think I'm talented enough to write fiction. Why don't I, I just start with something that's perhaps nonfiction? And I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, how about I write my own story just as practice and uh, then I could move on to something else. And so I just kind of started, you know, I started at the beginning from my childhood through to, um, through to you know, my active alcoholism and then briefly into my early recovery. And I'd written this out and, you know, it, it kind of got to book length and I thought, okay, this is a really boring piece of work. I've, <laughs> I've spent so much time on it. Um, maybe, you know, when my children are older, what I could do is I could I could get it back out, go through it, um, you know, and if I wanted to perhaps pitch it to a publisher, I could, or I could just use this as practice and, and now start writing something interesting. But I thought, you know what, it's not going to cost me anything to send off a few prospective emails to some of the publishers um, you know, they're going to come back, they're going to say, um, thanks, but no thanks. Um, but hey, you know what, it's not going to cost me a cent. And what I ended up doing was I, I sent it to about four or five publishers. And about three of those came back and said, thanks, but we're, you know, uh, it's not what we're after at the moment. Uh, and one came back and, and they said, oh, listen, we love it. We'd like to get it out um, later this year. <laughs> and, and my immediate uh, cynical reaction was, oh, it must be a scam. They're going to ask me for money. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it didn't take long and, and uh, I got another phone call from them saying, uh, James, you know, um, we haven't heard back from you. We really want to get this out. Can um, We're going to send you a contract. And I got a contract. And um uh, there it was in front of me, and it seemed legitimate. And um, you know, all of a sudden, this story that I, I'd just been writing, I guess, um, just for a bit of practice, and um, uh, in the prelude of, of, I guess, further writing down the track, uh, really took on a life of its own. You know, and, and that's, um, and then that hit the shelves in, in February of that year. Oh, sorry, of the, the following year. And, and again, you know, that's one of those man. That's one of those moments of sobriety where. If I had planned that, it never would have happened. You know, it certainly would have happened when I was drinking. But if I had started out with the thing, I'm going to write and it's going to get published and it's going to be out there on the shelves, you know, I, I would have burnt myself out by living in the, the um, uh, you know, my sponsor says, you know, if, if you're going to write something, just sit down and write it a day at a time and, and, and leave, the, leave the outcome 
um, to, to when things actually happened because he was telling me that he would often sit down and he'd start writing and he'd be a few thousand words in and all of a sudden he'd found himself picturing himself getting the book deal being right. <laughs> yeah. and he'd already lived he'd already lived all the the great things that would have come in, in his right. mind and, and when he got back to sitting in front of it he he had no interest in actually right. typing anything. um no doubt so it was a real gift actually i think having uh, an attitude of actually you know this probably won't go anywhere the chances are quite small so i just wrote from the heart and right. um you know, it was it was pretty much um, what we covered today, um, talking about, and, and that hit the shelves, you know, and, and that was, um, you know, it's done moderately well, um, but at the same time, it's been it, it's been a real shift for me because I think, like a lot of us, certainly, you know, I'd always shared openly, uh, you know, in my fellowship, um, but but outside of that, you know, I, I carried a lot of shame, and, and of course, you know, there's there's certain things that you know you don't. You don't. If you're living a healthy sobriety, you don't need to go, you know, shouting about every time you meet someone new. You know, you've got to have those boundaries. But all of a sudden, it was all out there. It was literally right. an open book. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it was quite. Um, it, it's it's been out for two years now, and um, you know, it opened up this new world for me. It um, yeah, and it's been quite a, a side product of that, which has been quite effective. Was that it helped me deal with a lot of shame that I that I carried into sobriety about how I was when I drank. Um, you know, I, I didn't want people to know certain aspects, of, particularly around the feelings or, or just particularly, you know, around the stuff I got up to in, in being just a, a juvenile delinquent, really. And and I would get emails and um, since the book has been out from, you know, serving police officers saying, actually, you know, you sound like a you know really good bloke and... Um, uh, you know, you went through a lot. And, and, you know, here I was thinking, oh, man, you know, if a police officer read this book, they're just going to think I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a scumbag. You know, yeah. once a criminal, always a criminal. And, and, and the reception's been fantastic. You know, it's, um, it, it's, it's really helped to shift a lot of that shame I felt over that period of my life and, and be a, a lot more loving to myself, you know. so. And what a beautiful um, extension of your recovery to be able to, you know, produce this work uh, that is obviously, uh, it sounds incredibly sort of therapeutic for you just in terms of being able to, you know, uh, shed some of the, the, the shame and, and, and not to have to have an expectation attached to it. And I, I feel the same way about my podcast. seems like, like it's mm-hmm. not about, anything else but being able to share these stories and anything else that comes out of it is just, you know, icing on the cake for me. It really is. And when I, when I understand that my intent is pure and that I'm not, you know, trying to become, you know, uh, famous in an anonymous program, uh, Mm. but I am just trying to share some experience, strength and hope, uh, I wanted to let the audience know it's called That Fry Boy, okay? Um, and you can pick it up uh, online. I know that for sure because I see I'm looking at it right now. Um, so again, the book is called That Fry Boy uh, by James Fry, F R Y, um, and uh, it, it is available and you can pick it up. And uh, um, I think any time that you can, you know, read uh, and and. In, in experience somebody's story um, uh, that has, you know, this insight um, that you have into recovery. What an amazing, um, uh, what an amazing opportunity. So um, uh, tell me what you're doing today. So now you've got this book out. You, 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 it's received relatively well and, um, and uh, been a, a great personal experience. What are you doing right now? Yeah, yeah, well, thanks, Charles, um, and, and thanks for giving my book a shout out. Um, well, at the moment, I've been I've spent the last year and a bit trying to build a, a. I guess it's a it's a local Australian company, but ideally one day we'll have more of an international reach because of the the content we're covering. But it's a, a startup media company um, where we cover topics that perhaps are a little bit. Um, taboo, not in a crass sense, but using good journalistic integrity to, to cover topics that will appeal to perhaps younger readers on issues, whether it's around sex, drugs, addiction, um, crime. Um, in the States, I know you have uh, Vice Media, 
we've right. become quite a, a large conglomerate. We're, we're trying to get a similar thing off the ground here, and it's been fantastic experience. It's been a really amazing learning experience for me. We started off with the um, the the I guess the written content, which has seen some really great pieces, and, and you know your listeners can check it out at transgression.com.au. Uh, and this year, we're really focusing now on doing more visual pieces. So we're hoping to get into short documentaries, um, short clips, uh, which is I guess it's the way it's going forward in the media landscape anyway. Um, but it's it's just been a phenomenal learning experience for me because I'm coming from a background with no media background apart from, I guess, interviews around the books and things like that and just being able to communicate and, and uh, learn from people in the industry who have far more experience. Um, you know, like, like we do in the fellowship, you know, you get two people together in a room and, and you, you create a sense of um, – uh, where, where people can share comfortably about stuff, just just being able to do that has been an eye opener for me, and I've I've really been able to, um, I guess, not only learn a lot, but meet some fantastic people who have been willing to share their experience and and, and strength with me in their own respective industries. Whilst um, whilst I grow that, that's fantastic. It's called transgression.com.au. If you guys want to check that out, James. Before we call the interview a wrap, I want. Two very, very, very important questions. Uh, you're, a, you're a punk rock fan from the outset. What was the first band that turned you on to punk rock? Oh, that's a really good question. And they're probably not, uh, it'll probably have real punk rockers um, uh, turning their nose up at me. <laughs> but uh, it, 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 was a, it was a gateway drug, and it was listening to uh, Green Day's uh, Dookie. Um, so that that open that's amazing yeah, that because Green Day is a huge and I'm still a huge Green Day fan. So I and I, and and people true punk rock fans can you know uh, right yeah, exactly uh, get their righteous indignation uh, <laughs> uh, on. But uh, I can a hundred percent identify with that. Yeah, certainly the gateway, and then I moved into you know I'm really big fan of the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag. Um, and, and bands like that, but certainly, yeah, it was listening to um, Dookie that um, I guess, yeah, really started to uh, steer me in that direction. Like, blew your mind to the extent where, like, whoa, there's this whole genre of music that is angry and defiant, and you know, sticking their middle finger out at uh, society, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, and someone to give a voice to. Uh, I guess, yeah, feelings I was feeling, but it couldn't quite articulate. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are you listening to? Second question, very important, James. What are you listening to today? Oh, man. Now, this is really where the punks are going to, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, You're going to alienate just, the community, James. They're going to they're gonna stop listening to the uh, the podcast right now. <laughs> but um, it's not, I've gone dramatically softer. Um Oh man, I, I love a good female singer. So one of my famous uh, favorite um, groups is a British group or a British singer called Natasha Khan. She sings in a group for called Bat for Lashes. Um, so yeah, if, if anyone I'm check it out. hasn't heard Bat, of that, it's called Bat yeah, for check Lashes. It out. Yeah, I, I don't know how much of it is uh, an appreciation of her music, or, or maybe it's just a crush I have on her. But um, okay, so she, she's she's good looking, is what you're telling me. She, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you yeah, wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't kick her out of bed for eating crackers? No, well, yeah, no, no, I wouldn't, and um, <laughs> I, and I wouldn't kick my wife out of bed for eating crackers because we had that argument recently. <laughs> so, um, but but in a uh, yeah uh, in. Uh, I don't know. I'm just going to dig myself a bigger hole by talking any more about um, that good Natasha Khan. So you know what? Uh, um, yeah. straight, there's, there's nothing that pays off. I think the big book says this, James. There's nothing that pays off more than restraint of tongue and pen. <laughs> I, think, I think you nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> James, I appreciate the time you gave us today. Uh, what an amazing story. Uh, it's so amazing when I'm able to connect with people that, uh, regardless, like you said, of the window dressing of life, age and, 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 and location and, uh, uh, that, you know, uh, especially us, uh, recovering addicts and alcoholics, boy, do we have more in common than we have, uh, uh, than we have that's different. Oh, we sure do. And, and thank God for that. Thank you for the time, James. Be blessed. And, uh, uh, let's not be strangers. Yeah, thanks so much, Charles. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. 
where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.